Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami For this uh, talk in the Range Retreat of 1998, I wanted to continue encouraging the practice of meditation. Again, emphasizing just uh, a talk about the nuts and bolts of meditation, a how-to type of talk, by talking uh, and explaining in this discourse about some of the other methods of meditation which can be used as a support for the practice of meditation I've already taught. So far that I've taught about the practice for the meditation on the breath to taking it as far as the, the beautiful breath and the nimitta in another talk later on, I'll talk how to develop that nimitta into a jhana. Even though uh, people may not be that close yet, it's still important to know so that when it does happen, the mind will have the information to know how to proceed. However, this time of the retreat, it's very helpful to uh, give some support to the practice of breath meditation through uh, pointing out some different methods of meditation which are not alternatives, <coughs> sorry, are not so much alternatives to the breath meditation but can be used alongside, the supplementary. Uh, as such, the, I always remember, and I've told many of you of this uh, in your personal interviews, that uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha, Lord Buddha once said that if a person gives exclusive attention to samadhi, they're liable to get into sloth and torpor. Basically, that if uh, one is just trying to uh, silence the mind, trying to bring it to calm and peacefulness, sometimes there's not enough to uh, delight the mind yet. This uh, mind which has been accustomed to activity will very often, when it's starting to calm down, will turn into slothfulness. And this is one of the problems which can happen after the first part of the retreat is uh, completed. And the Lord Buddha said that a meditator to avoid that problem should also give attention to two other things. One of them was pagaha, which I understand is uh, exerting the mind, uh, bringing forth some energy, uh, doing something with the mind, rather than trying to subdue it or calm it. And the other thing to develop is upeka, the equanimity. And this is something which I always do during uh, even intense periods of retreat, 
to make sure that I'm not just sitting, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, walking. Because if I do that, I will usually find just the mind, after a while, will rebel. And sometimes it needs something else to do. Uh, given a simile in uh, the interviews, it's like a person going to school. You can teach them for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, but then they need playtime. And you give those children playtime, and after they come back from the playground, they're much easier to teach. Their minds are fresh, and you can uh, give them more information, they will take it in. In the same way that sometimes, <coughs> sometimes the mind does need uh, playtime. However, mentioning that the mind needs playtime, uh, I'd give the, the warning that if it plays in areas which are unwholesome, uh, plays in areas of sensuality, of indulgence in the world outside, then it is counterproductive. This is not what I mean. What I mean is giving the mind something to do, such as you know, reading the suttas, or even doing a little bit of study of things like Pali or the suttas. Doing something useful, but something which rouses energy in the mind. And there are other times when one is practicing, practicing such meditation uh, that one needs to give to equanimity, to upeka, where that you are not aiming to calm the mind down, where you can literally just sit outside and, as I say it, just to watch the trees grow. Just to be patient, not to be trying to get anywhere, but just to allow the mind to relax completely. And if you manage to uh, balance the practice of samadhi with those two things, you usually find the samadhi does not get stuck in that sloth and that torpor. Sometimes when the mind starts to get <coughs> uh, tired, and if you push it too hard at that time, just trying willpower or force, you will usually find out that it will just increase the frustration. Uh, you should know that this path of meditation does not just depend upon willpower. But what is more important is wisdom power. And that brings me on quite nicely to the next type of meditation which you can be doing, which is the insight meditation. And that insight practice, as I understand it, and practice it at this stage of the meditation prior to jhanas, should be focused on what supports the practice leading towards deep meditation. I find that if a person uh, tries to develop insights on other matters, you'll find that there is no end <coughs> to areas which you can contemplate. There's no end to areas of existence and, and uh, the world which you can develop very interesting and useful insights. But basically, they're not really assisting the goal. Here in this monastery, according to my experience and understanding, it's important to get the stage of jhana first of all. And from that stage of jhana, to aim for the insights which destroy the defilements. And so the insight prior to jhana should be focused, should be on one thing, on how 
can I get deeper in this meditation? How can I can I attain these nimittas and get beyond them into jhanas? Because not only are these insights focused on this goal of gaining deep meditation, but by focusing them on that area, you'll find that they are insights which will be of great support to you later on in the eradication of the defilements. It is because that there are hidden attachments, hidden cravings that we don't see. It's because they're hidden that we cannot get into deep meditation. If the defilements were absent, if the hindrances were not there, you would have a smooth path into jhana every time. <coughs> and it's because there are some hindrance there, there's some obstacle there, that is the reason why that the jhanas don't manifest. And so whenever there is a blockage in your meditation, that is a time to use insight. An insight <coughs> is not gained by just uh, thinking about these things. Because sometimes we break into thought, we break into assessment too quickly. The way to gain insight is just to observe for a long while. Not even to note what you're observing. Because when you start noting what you're observing, it is <coughs> perception already arising and that perception you will later find out is untrustworthy. That that perception is already the result of defilements having been at work. So instead of trying to figure everything out, you just observe silently, peacefully, gathering data and then going much deeper into what you're observing. I did give the simile last week of the lotus, the thousand-petaled lotus. And you should know from that simile that the longer you look at something without noting it, without trying to understand it, without trying to name it or talk about it, the longer you look at it silently, the deeper you go into that object. This is something which I've taught often in Nolamara holding up something and asking people, what is this? And it's a very interesting experiment to do because you notice the first thing which you say, the first noting, is very superficial. If I hold up a piece of wood, people say it's a stick. And if they stop there, that's all they see and they can never go deeper. If you don't even say stick, or if you say stick and just pass it away, and then go deeper, piece of wood, and pass it away. Pass beyond all those noting and labels. And then you start to see something about that object which you hadn't seen before. And remember, the problem is, there is something you are not seeing. And so whenever there is an obstacle in your meditation, contemplate it in silence. Just gather more and more data until an insight happens and you find out exactly what that is. What is that problem? 
very often you can find that problem in terms of those five hindrances which was I was talking about later uh, two weeks ago sometimes you can see it in terms of a weakness of the five indriyas which I was talking about last week or even you can see that the problem lies in a weak practice of virtue, of morality in something which you're doing even in this monastery which you know you shouldn't be doing and that will be a great hindrance to your meditation see these things and don't be stupid as soon as you locate what the problem is through this practice of insight just silently observing probing in in that silence you know that insight has happened when you clearly see something which you never expected to see when you see something which was hidden and if that truly is the obstacle which was stopping you getting deep in meditation you will find that just that very seeing will make the mind go very peaceful in my experience that has always been the case an insight of this type at this stage in the meditation usually propels me very deep into the meditation it's as if I've been banging against the door and now I've got that key I discharge that door again and I go a long way through it and I'm saying a long way into peacefulness one of the insights about meditation I was talking uh, to many people about just about all of you I think except the senior monks was that these stages of meditation are like Chinese boxes the, the Chinese boxes is you open one box there's another box inside you open that box and there's another box within that and another box within that box and so on in each of these stages of meditation the next stage is not to the left or the right the next stage is right within the stage you're at now just like Chinese boxes so if there's ever a problem proceeding from one stage to the next so often insight will teach you that the reason why you can't go further is because you haven't built enough contentment on the stage you're already at in fact you are so yearning for the next stage you're actually looking at the present stage with a sense of aversion a sense of dissatisfaction wanting to go further if you see that you realize the way for fast progress in this practice of meditation is to develop such contentment on the stage you're at now that rather than you slide off it to some next stage you actually go right into the center and there you find the next stage in present moment awareness the awareness of the present moment the here and the now if you really get content and cultivate that to perfection you find that right in the center of the present moment lies this beautiful silence if you just rest on that silence not aiming to go anywhere else but being fully satisfied just with silence 
so often you will find that the breath will emerge all by itself. If you just watch that silence, content, sorry, watch that breath, content with that breath, absolutely satisfied with that breath, not wanting to go anywhere else, you will find that breath will become very beautiful. By itself it will become the beautiful breath. And if you are satisfied and content with that, and you don't want to rush off to a nimitta, but you're quite happy and develop a very deep contentment with the beautiful breath, you'll find, as it were, right in the very middle of that breath will come the nimitta. And instead of wanting to develop the nimitta into jhanas, you just stay with that nimitta. Make yourself so content with the nimitta that nimitta doesn't appear to move. If you are really content and still, the nimitta is still as well. Because the nimitta is no more than a reflection of your mind. If you move, then so does the nimitta. So you just develop contentment with that nimitta, absolutely at peace with it, not wanting it, not wanting it to do anything. And then you'll find that within that nimitta, the very beautiful heart of that nimitta will jump out at you or you'll go into it, you'll go into a jhana. Because each of these stages of meditation are stages of deepening contentment. More and more profound levels of peacefulness. And you should know even logically that you cannot get peacefulness by doing things. Stillness means no movement. So you stop, you rest, you're content, and thereby you develop each of these stages. What you're seeing here is that the udacha, the hindrance of restlessness, is that which stops the progress on the stages. Contentment, Satisfaction is the opposite of restlessness. When you're happy where you are, you don't want to go anywhere else. There is the insight which I taught earlier on about learning to delight in each of these stages. Basically, you're learning the delight of contentment, the delight of not moving, the happiness of stopping not doing something, not going anywhere, the happiness of stopping. It's developing cessation. Cessation, little by little, drop by drop, until things actually do start to stop. People in the world celebrate beginnings, births, birthdays, new houses, new jobs, new relationships, in the Dharma we celebrate endings, cessations, stoppings. That sort of insight of stopping, ending things, finishing with things, not starting things, is a sort of insight which will propel you very deep into the Dharma. We're practicing not to make more things, not to begin new projects, but to end all the old ones. The practice of insight 
will show you just how you can progress deeply in meditation. <laughs> you can even focus on your body with insight. But when I focus on my body, all I find that this body is just so uh, impossible to find any happiness or peace there. Whenever I do insert meditation on my body, I always find it incredibly irritating. It's very rare that I can actually sit still or lay still or stand still or do anything still for more than a few moments. In fact, the only time that I can gain stillness of the body is when I'm in deep meditation. And when I'm in deep meditation, the body can become still because I'm not paying any attention to it whatsoever. And that teaches me that the reason why this body is suffering is because of our attention to it. The only escape from that suffering is basically going somewhere else, deep in meditation. And that's why that when it comes to good health, when it comes to comforts, when it comes to trying to get rid of irritations of the body, I realize it's basically futile. So the concern for this physical body, for its health, for its beauty, for its longevity, I find it's just a complete waste of my time. I leave the body according to its own karma and I'm just going to focus on my mind. And I found through experience and what, more, what is insight but just experiential knowledge, I found through insight that even when your body is sick, even when it's hurting, that's not necessarily an obstacle to your meditation. It's not an obstacle to deep states of peace. Even once, I remember one monk who I know very, very well, who had a great fever and was in the hospital and got so fed up, he decided to meditate, just laying on his side, and got into very deep meditation. The fact that that can happen when you have typhus fever shows that if you've got a headache or a stomachache or any old ache, it's not necessarily an obstacle to deep meditation. You find that it's not the pain in the body is the obstacle. It's your concern about it. That's the obstacle. And you can let it go if you really want to. It's a very important thing to know because there will come a time in your life when you get very sick and come a time in your life when you're about to die. It's very lovely if you can get into deep meditation at that time and you can transcend this irritating body by having the courage to let it go, having the insight to know that it can be done, having the insight to know how it is done. These are valuable insights, insights which will be of great benefit to you. These are not the insights which you can get a lot of praise from because you can give nice talks. It's not the purpose of insight, so you can become a great teacher or write good books. 
purpose of insight is because it works to free you from suffering in your life. One of the other great insights which you can get is that, again, the way to, one of the nice ways of developing uh, samadhi, developing this ability to hold on to an object, is when you invest that object with some beauty, with some happiness. This has been such an important part in my meditation practice that I emphasize this so much as one of the insights which gave me great success in my meditation. Realizing the only way that you can hold any stage of meditation is when that stage of meditation is perceived as being beautiful, as being happy, as being delightful. And understanding through insight that you can make it happy, you can make it delightful. The perception can be manipulated if you're wise enough. <coughs> That's a sort of insight which is very useful in your meditation. And once I decided to use that insight by combining one of the very powerful meditation techniques, basic, namely metta, loving-kindness meditation, alongside the breath. I do loving-kindness meditation as well as my meditation methods. <coughs> and I decided once to combine it with the meditation on the breath. As I said, you can use perception in whichever way you want. Remember once in what Nana chart, seeing a white cloth on the line and using my perception and it looked black. It was weird and strange that the mind could do that. It was true. I saw a black cloth on the line and then I changed my perception it was white. Perception is weird. This particular time of meditating on the breath, you can actually use your perception to regard the breath in such a way that it brings up great loving kindness towards the breath. Basically, when I was doing this, I perceived the breath as a baby, as a young child, my child. When I developed that perception of the breath going in and going out, like a child which I was holding in my arms, not only did I feel such responsibility for that breath that I would never drop it under any circumstance, also that just holding it gave me great delight, just as a parent does delight in their child, whether they are a man or a woman. And so as I was holding that breath with loving kindness, imagining it to be a child, as I remember just the Lord Buddha's teaching in the Karanya Matta Sutta. Just like a mother loves her only child and would give her life for that child, so too I loved my breath to the point I would give my life for that breath. And then of course there was no problem at all with keeping such pure unbroken mindfulness on my breath. And the, keeping that mindfulness there was delightful. The mind wanted to do it because it was combined with loving-kindness, with care. 
I notice that whatever I love and care for, I find delight in. So by loving and caring for the breath, I was investing it with delight. And doing that, the mind got very, very concentrated and very deep in meditation. It was a skillful means. Because that attitude of loving-kindness, of metta, is that softness of mind, which is basically the only way you can get into deep meditation. If you have a hard mind, then basically you have a hard time in your meditation. What loving-kindness meditation does, it develops the acquaintance with the emotional side of your mind. And, basically speaking, I've said this before, the deep meditations, especially the jhanas, are much, if you want to call them anything, you might call them emotional states of mind, where the mind is merged with piti sukha, with a great bliss, where the intellectual mind is completely stopped, and this is very necessary to be able to suspend that rational mind in order to get into deep meditation. And doing loving-kindness is a very skillful technique of suspending rationality and messing around with your perceptions and getting such great beauty and peace in your heart. <coughs> For those of you who wish to embark on loving-kindness meditation, I would encourage it as a great help to your meditation on the breath, either done completely separately or as a support. But please remember that loving-kindness can be looked upon or compared to a fire. And if you're going to light a fire and really get it well established, you have to start with things which are easy to set fire to. And when I'm lighting a fire, you start with paper and twigs, then you put on bigger sticks, and then bigger sticks until you can put the logs on. If there's a very big fire going, you can put the wettest logs, the sappiest logs you want onto that fire. The heat will dry it out and it will burn. In the same way, if you're going to develop loving kindness, I would advise you to start with things or people which you find easy to light with a fire of loving-kindness. Build it, build it up from there. And then add more things and more things. And only when the fire is very hot do you put on such things as your enemy or yourself. And develop that. It takes a lot of confidence and faith, the sadha, to know that one, this is worthwhile, and two, that you can do it. Have confidence you can play with perceptions in this way, and it is worthwhile. And don't be afraid of the happiness of those states. Another way which I like to do loving-kindness meditation was I imagined a circle in my mind. And inside that circle was all of the people, <coughs> all of the things and situations which I liked and approved of. Just outside those, that circle 
with the people, situations and things which I didn't really approve of but which I was quite indifferent towards. And further out were my enemies. Not just people but things or situations I didn't like. And a long way away were the things I really hated and detested. And as I developed loving-kindness meditation I just imagined filling that circle up with metta towards all the people I liked, all the situations and things which I found comfortable. But then as I filled it up with loving-kindness I could imagine it expanding. Only when it was full inside would it expand properly. And first of all encompassing those people, those situations, even those memories which I were indifferent towards. I could begin to accept and like them, expanding that circle more and more until it started to encompass my enemies, people who'd hurt me, situations I didn't like, memories which were unpleasant. I could accept them all in with this feeling of loving-kindness. I tried to pump enough loving-kindness into that circle, eventually expanded so far they included every one, everything, every experience I ever had with full acceptance, with metta, with care, with love. And that's how I developed what I understood then as boundless. I couldn't see the boundary you've just gone off to the edges of the universe somewhere. That sort of boundless loving-kindness <coughs> creates a couple of very important things. It creates a great happiness in the mind and it creates a perception of non-duality neither in nor out. And those sorts of perceptions of beauty and non-duality you can, the mind can latch on to and very easy to turn into a nimitta and from that nimitta go into a jhana. This is how you could even use metta to go all the way into jhanas. You can use that practice of metta even to develop insight. If your aspiration is may I be happy and well, may all beings be happy and well, it's part of that aspiration to find out what is happiness and well-being for you. What is the happiness and well-being of others? It's in your interest to discover the peace, the freedom, which is the goal of all beings. It's in your interest to find out what's blocking, what's frustrating that peace and happiness. If loving-kindness is done properly, it will, along with it, drag along insight and wisdom as a means for achieving the goal of loving-kindness. May I be absolutely happy and well. May I attain Nibbāna. That loving-kindness can be done at any time it's always said to be a counterbalance to uh, dosa, 
this also is a counterbalance to sloth and torpor as well. Because when I do loving-kindness meditation, you get so high from it, the energy starts to come. I've noticed in my life as a monk, the energy and happiness go together. The tiredness and depression go together. When I was frustrated, I get tired. When things were going well, I didn't want to sleep. I just so much energy. Loving kindness generates energy. That's why sometimes I use it as <coughs> that second of the three things which a monk should do, which I talked about at the very beginning of this talk. If you're giving exclusive attention to samadhi, you get sloth and torpor. So I give attention to samadhi and for developing this energy, pagaha, sometimes I do loving kindness. To brighten up the mind, to give it that energy that it really wants to go into deep meditation, it really wants to watch the breath. It's alive, it wants to be mindful. It doesn't want to sleep. Loving kindness meditation. The other meditations I wanted to mention today are the meditations called Buddhanusati, Dhammanusati, Sanghanusati, Siranusati, Chaganusati and Devata Anusati. The recollections of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the recollections of your the purity of your moral conduct, the recollection of your generosity, even the recollection of the Devas. This comes to mind because recently I was writing about a passage in the suttas where the Lord Buddha advises Mahanama who at this stage was a stream winner, to develop these six recollections as a way of generating jhana. And uh, talking with many others about this, we commented that Buddhanusati, the contemplation, recollection of the Lord Buddha, is a classic way in the Northeast Thai forest tradition for generating samadhi and jhanas starting off with Buddha. And this is something which you can employ in your meditation practice. If you have a feeling for the meaning of the word Buddha, <coughs> you have an idea of what that term really means, and you have a degree of faith, so much so that you mention that word, and joy comes up in the mind that the energy starts to come up as you recollect that it was because of the Lord Buddha that there can be any monastery, that there can be any practice, there can be any jhanas, there can be any enlightenment. That, that was a very, very powerful phenomena arising in India 25 centuries ago. Just earlier this year, going to India and actually sitting meditation on spots where the Lord Buddha sat. That was powerful. Buddha and Sati in such places just brings up pity just straight away. It brings up pity now just as I recall it. That's Buddha and Sati. 
it sort of immediately brings up this pamudya, this happiness, brings up pity, this joy. And you know that there is a sequence which the Buddha taught. From pamudya comes pity, joy. From joy comes a calm body and a calm mind. From the calm body and mind comes this ease, this sukha inside the mind. This contentment. And from contentment comes samadhi, jhanas. And this is how the Buddha taught Mahanama. And this is what I'm suggesting to you now. To use things like Buddhanusati to develop joy, to develop happiness. And then to watch the whole process whereby the body becomes peaceful. You probably have all noticed that when you sit meditation, if joy doesn't come up, this body is restless, you can't keep it still. There's an itch here, there's an ache there. And you get up after a few minutes, so you, you fit it around. If there is happiness in the mind, the body becomes still. Basically because the attention goes to that mental happiness and you just completely ignore the physical body. And this can be done through Buddha Anusati, recollecting on the Buddha, but not just saying, Itipiso uh, Bhagawa Arahang, you've got to do it with feeling. Develop that perception, cultivate it. Cultivate it until it's like a love of the Lord Buddha. Enormous respect for the Lord Buddha. As if it's one of the most powerful things in the whole universe, which actually it is. Develop the same for the Dhamma. It's amazing teaching which liberates all beings if they could only follow the instructions. Develop the same for the Sangha. When I was in India, I actually sat in the cave in which Venerable Sariputta became enlightened. Think like that and just pity comes up. Your eyes get watery. This is Sangha Anusati. You're remembering the great Arahats in the world. The great Aryas and their power and their service to the world. When that happens, Pramuja Piti come up. You don't feel like sleeping. You don't feel like wandering off and thinking anywhere else. As they practiced, so can you practice. You can walk in the footsteps of the Lord Buddha if you want to. In the lesser discourse on the simile of the elephant's footprint. The Lord Buddha said, the footprints of the Lord Buddha begin with first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. <coughs> if you're devoted to the Lord Buddha, try and walk in his footsteps. And it's amazing that if you can get into those states, in those states, when you come out afterwards, you can reflect that that experience was no different, no more, no less, than what the Lord Buddha experienced himself, what the Arahats, what the Aryas experienced. The jhanas are such single states, the same for all beings. 
place is a place where there's a unity of perception. When you know that, if you go into a jhana and you come out afterwards, you know you've been to where the Buddha went. You know it really is a footstep of the Lord Buddha. It's the things which really give incredible bliss to the mind and make it just so easy to go in there again. It's Sanganusati, Buddhanusati, Dhammanusati. Silanusati. Sometimes you look at your practice of virtue and you can see some faults. Maybe you're not always keeping every particular rule. But look at all the rules you are keeping. As Westerners, we have what we call the fault finding mind which very often just looks at one's behaviour and sees one small mistake, focuses on it and blows it up to the exclusion of everything else you're doing. To the point that sometimes people wonder and are surprised, why do so many people come and feed us? Why do so many people come such a long way every week, some every day, just to bring food to us? Surely we're not don't deserve this. They think you do. I think you do as well. Your practice of sila, of virtue and morality, all the way down to those who are just staying the three months in this monastery, is deserving of respect. You should reflect upon how other people look at your sila as a source of inspiration to the point that you too could be inspired by the practice of your own sila. So you can look upon yourselves as those who come every day to feed you look upon you with devotion, with respect, with a sense of happiness and joy. This is a way you can look upon your sila and get great happiness and joy. Sila Anusati the contemplation of your purity you're not absolutely pure yet, you're not an arahat, but you're good enough to develop that bliss and that purity. I'd advise you to try that from time to time. But also Chaganusati. This is one of my favourites. Sometime like this morning, go and have a walk around the monastery and just see how much I've given to this monastery. See much how much you've given to this monastery, how much you've given to the Dhamma, all the generosity and the kindness which you've done in your life. When you start contemplating like that, it starts to bring up great happiness and bliss. And lastly, Devata Anusati, the contemplation of the Devas blissful beings. According to this standard contemplation, you say that as you're practicing now with the sila and the chaga, the generosity you're practicing, if you don't get higher, if you don't get stream winner, at the very least, you go into a great heaven realm. But those are not to be underestimated. That at least will give you some happiness in monastic life much better than being in the lay life. It's 
not so much chance of getting a good rebirth. And things like this are recollections which the Lord Buddha encouraged as a means of developing piti, pamuja, and starting this natural process which leads on into deep samadhi. It's worthwhile doing. Whenever you're asked to do anything in the monastery, some service for somebody else, don't do it just thinking, I've got to get this out of the way so I can really get into my meditation. If it's your time to be on the kitchen duties, or on washing up, or sweeping, or chaperone, or whatever, look upon it as an opportunity for developing these recollections, for giving the fuel for pity, for happiness to arise. In this way, you find that you can uh, have more tools to your belt, as they say, more ways of dealing with this mind by delighting it when one particular type of meditation starts to get dull, when you start to get tired. Try one of these other types of meditation you'll find they will work for a while and then they too will become dull. So then you pick up another one. If you've got two or three of these, you can use them in rotation. you find if you put one aside for a couple of days, when you pick it up again, it's sharp. It's just the nature of the mind. It delights in new things. After a while, you know how to put that delight, even in old things. We also use the practice of mindfulness throughout the day as part of our meditation practice. But basically, I call that just the first stage of this meditation, present moment awareness. If I'm walking, if I'm talking to somebody, if I'm on the telephone, try to develop that present moment here and now awareness. Try and develop silence. So if someone's talking to me, I'm not thinking about what I'm going to say next. I'm really listening. When I'm eating, I'm just silent. Just noticing the different tastes which come into my mouth and how they don't last very long at all. So what's the big deal about nice food or unpleasant food? All of these things through present moment awareness, all these things through silence, means that when it does get time when I can go and sit down and meditate on my cushion, I've been practicing present moment awareness and silence for a long time. You may think that I'm active by talking to all these people, by writing letters, by being on the phone, doing this, doing that, but through practice of present moment awareness and silence, it means when I do get chance to sit on my cushion, I have not been wasting time. This is that meditation on those first two stages. I was going to talk about walking meditation, but I want to, if it's alright with Ajahnana Dhamma, to leave it for him <coughs> when it's time for him to give a talk while I'll be on retreat. But for this evening, I've given you some instruction, some advice on different types of meditation to use. 
if the meditation on the breath is not working to your satisfaction, try some of these methods. I mentioned first of all, if I can recall it uh, properly, uh, using insight, using metta, loving-kindness. I haven't mentioned asupa. I think I mentioned that the other day, a super towards the body, but also a super towards the senses. A super especially towards your defilements. Uh, Loving-kindness meditation and the recollections of the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, Sila, Chaga and Devata, the six recollections. <coughs> and also uh, just the recollection of everyday mindfulness, by which I mean being in the present moment and being as silent as you can. For monks, when you're listening to the Patimokha, even if you don't understand Pali, listen to the sounds. And don't go thinking about this, that and the other. If you're listening to a talk, make your mind absolutely silent. And don't go thinking about this, that or the other. Otherwise, you're wasting the opportunity to develop deeper meditation. So this is some advice about other ways of meditating which should not be seen as alternatives but just as supports. The goal of the moment is to develop jhanas. Use these as a means to help you with that goal. So this is the talk for this evening. Has anyone got any comments or questions they'd like to ask?